Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 219, To Fight or Not to Fight? That is the question. Last time, at 8.30 p.m., March 23, 1942, convoy WS-17, supposedly carrying 50,000 troops for the east, set sail from the home islands. Of course, London's greatest concern was getting this force to Madagascar safely. As such, the destroyer escort was laid on thick, and those relatively small but fast ships darted in and out and around the troop ships, which all had landing craft instead of lifeboats hanging from the ship's davits. Wherever they were going, it was not India. And once underway, there was only one incident before reaching Freetown, Sierra Leone. U-boat 587 came upon this ever-turning convoy and prepared to go after the ships that were carrying the troops. But the destroyers moved in quickly, by this time being experts on the subject, and sank the threat before it could become a threat itself. As things stood, the passenger liner Winchester Castle carried the number 5 commando force of 365 men. The rest of the ship was taken up with the operation rooms for the assault commander, Captain Gernons Williams of the Royal Navy and Brigadier Festing, and their staffs. On the Karen was the 1st Royal Scott Fusiliers, while the 2nd Battalion of the Scott Fusiliers was on the ocean liner SS Aranze, with the Seaforth Highlanders. The once-sunk U-boat was, of course, good news, but there was more good news when the staffs found out that they were also to be given the 2nd Brigade of the 5th Division, the 13th Brigade, that is, the one led by Brigadier V.C. Russell. The 13th would be acting as a reserve force. With this addition, General Sturgis would have some 13,000 men to call on. The thinking behind adding this brigade, last minute, was to offer up a seemingly unstoppable force to the Vichy French. London now believed too few men had been involved when the Middle East had been secured, and they were right. The Vichy forces then felt that they had a fighting chance, and so resisted. The war cabinet in London did not want a repeat of this. Of course, as nothing worth doing is ever easy, Sturgis was told not to use this additional brigade unless their backs were to the wall or if they needed a mop-up operation. For if they were not needed, London did not want them bloodied as they were to continue on to India eventually. So the reserve brigade was aboard the Franconia while her gear and vehicles were aboard the Nain Bank and Martland. Now they were told to join WS-17. And there would be one more ship to go along with Operation Ironclad. This was the SS Bacayero, which could sail across an ocean, but once it was at its destination, it could come close to shore due to its shallow drought and unload tanks to help support the infantrymen. But for Ironclad, the Bacayero would be carrying a battery of 25-pounders, along with six lorries, or trucks. In fact, Bacayero was already in Durban for a refit. Here's some of what she had to endure. Her oil tanks were removed for a flat, stronger surface for tanks. Two 50-ton derrick cranes were added to lift tanks from the tank deck to the upper deck. The front was made square to allow for a heavy steel door to be put there. 
and in time the door would lower and it had an extension so that tanks, trucks, jeeps, or what have you had a 100-foot or 30-meter ramp to traverse down. This tank landing ship, or TLS, was such a new secret, even its captain for this voyage, Lieutenant Commander A.W. McMullen, had never seen her. Hopefully, she would make a difference and help take the fight to the enemy, who would, hopefully, again, give up without that fight. At 3 a.m. during the early morning of April 1st, Admiral Seifert aboard the Malaya, escorted by the destroyers La Foray, Lightning, Active, Duncan, and Anthony, left from Gibraltar. A few hours later, the Hermione followed suit. Churchill, meanwhile, was still awake back in London, and he wrote to FDR that the fleet had left and hopefully would be getting to where they were going without the Vichy or Japanese any the wiser. And then came the first of many wrinkles. During the afternoon of the next day, April 2nd, Seifert was messaged that it was believed the French battleship Richelieu, along with three light cruisers, was leaving Dakar on Africa's west coast and making for France. The Admiralty wasn't sure of the why of this, but it did not need or want those ships any closer to France, where the Germans might get their hands on them. Seifert was told to intercept and engage. The Admiral got busy refueling his escorts and then started a search pattern. But after a few days, the search was called off. Then Seifert was ordered on to Freetown. On Seifert's little fleet sailed south. As the temperature increased, the men switched to their tropical khaki uniform, getting out of those heavy battle dress. But if they thought life was going to be any easier on this voyage, they were very much wrong. The commanders wanted the men to stay in shape, as spending a week or two in cramped corners was not conducive to exercise. So again, the commanders came up with ways to get the men to exert themselves. But it turned out most of the men got their physical exercise from vomiting. Seasickness was rife throughout the fleet. With the search for the Richelieu over, the voyage to Freetown in Sierra Leone took two weeks. But even then, the men were not allowed to disembark. But between a map of Madagascar in a prominent position on the merchant ship Karen and the noticeable French-speaking intelligence officers on board, well, the men put two and two together. Madagascar, it was. When the fleet left Freetown, the exercises on the decks became serious training sessions. Officers who had been in combat from the 29th Brigade spent time with the men of the 17th Brigade to educate them on the harsh realities of war. Of course, the men were also told not to drink the water and to not do anything with the local women. This is a time-honored order and has been honorably ignored time and time again throughout history. Though the training was intense, that did not mean it wasn't boring, and the heat just got worse, for many of these boys were used to more moderate temperatures. Still, there were moments of entertainment, or at least distraction. The Indomitable, always nearby, launched planes during the day, which was neat to watch for the first few times. Then the ships would alter course as a sub or possible sub was detected. 
And in truth, there would be a few torpedoes sent their way, but no ship was hit, nor was any sub sunk. But what the men did not know, nor their officers, was that this operation and their lives in general were about to get a lot harder. For there were enemy forces moving towards Madagascar. Berlin had kept up its pressure on Tokyo to conduct operations in the western Indian Ocean, for selfish reasons, obviously. But the Japanese were desirous of having control of the entire Indian Ocean, if only to protect that avenue of approaching their whole islands. And it was this pressure that finally got the Japanese to move. Admiral Nomura, who had been the Japanese ambassador to the United States when Pearl Harbor was attacked, was now back in his country and acting as an advisor to his country's government. He was tasked with telling Admiral Kurt Frick that Tokyo had decided to send four long-range subs and two auxiliary cruisers to patrol the waters of the Arabian Sea. That is, the waters between the Indian West Coast and Africa's East Coast, as well as to patrol around the Cape of Good Hope. This would go on, they continued, from May to July, and should stymie any Allied reinforcements coming to the east. In addition, the Japanese told the Germans they would also bomb the port facilities at the Trincomile on Ceylon, and a large Japanese fleet was now and would stay in the Bay of Bengal. The Indian Ocean was quickly becoming a Japanese pond, and its western end would fall in line soon enough. But what little London knew of this was bad enough. As Churchill wrote to FDR, there is no reason why the Japanese should not become the dominating factor in the western Indian Ocean. This would result in the collapse of our whole position in the Middle East, not only because of the interruption of our convoys to the Middle East and India, but also because of the interruption of oil supplies from Abadan in modern-day Iran, without which we cannot maintain our position either at sea or on land in the Indian Ocean area. But it was Churchill's chiefs of staff that said the other part out loud. Quote, we are in real danger of losing our Indian Empire. Unquote. Back to the German-Japanese conversation, the Nazis, of course, wanted more. Soon, Foreign Minister Togo himself was being questioned on this very subject, as in, were the naval maneuvers already mentioned, a precursor to more substantial operations in the Western Indian Ocean. Togo said yes, diplomatically. He said, in time, they would also affect the Western part of the Indian Ocean, so that Japanese conduct of the war would correspond with the German desire for a Japanese advance in the direction of the Near East. But history shows the more words you use to say yes, means you're saying no. But here's where the cover story for Operation Ironclad went astray. Supposedly, the force under Seifert was to head to India to join the fight there. But it was now obvious to anyone that this Allied fleet would not be sailing into Japanese-controlled waters. It would be suicide. So where were they really going? London told Admiral Seifert to change his cover story. Now they were heading to the Middle East, and that General Sturgis should leak this to some of his men, because, as they all knew, 
they would talk, and word would get around. Meanwhile, the forces at Alexandria, Egypt, openly spoke of an upcoming but false operation against Italian naval assets. The idea, the hope, was to muddy the waters enough to get this force into position without having to fight its way there. On April 19th, the convoy closed in on the Cape of Good Hope. So Seyfried, in the Malaya, along with the illustrious and his destroyer escort, pulled into Cape Town to talk things over with General Smuts, the South African Prime Minister. Smuts, excited by this operation, said that he felt long ago that Madagascar should have been incorporated into the empire, and he was offering up a squadron of his air force to help. But this would be altered so that the squadron would come in after Diego Suarez Bay was taken. They would help patrol. And yet, there were still those back in London whispering that this was an unhelpful diversion. The Middle East needed more men. India needed more men. Ceylon as well, before the Japanese landed there, having wrecked the main port city there. Now, all this talk was getting on Churchill's nerves, but there was at least one aspect of this that he could counter, and did so. On April 30th, the Prime Minister wrote the following to his men. We are not setting out to subjugate Madagascar, but rather to establish ourselves in key positions to deny it to a far-flung Japanese attack. A principal objective must be to get our best troops forward to India and Ceylon at the earliest moment, replacing them with garrison battalions from East or West Africa. Getting this place is meant to be a help and not a new burden. But having said that, Admiral Seyfried would find that his list of cities to take was growing every day. While in Cape Town, but only for one night, Seyfried transferred his flag from the Malaya to the illustrious. And then it was on to Durban, on South Africa's east coast, where the rest of the fleet was waiting. He and his left Cape Town on April 20th at 7 a.m. and reached Durban two days later. That same day, South Africa officially broke off diplomatic relations with Vichy. To help muddy the waters, Smuts had spread around the port city of Durban just before the fleet got there, word that they were, in fact, heading to Madagascar. And then he sent out a group of different spies that were to go around the port and tell everyone that Madagascar was just a ruse. The attacking force really was heading for Ceylon. Once at Durban, the men who would invade Madagascar were put through the paces for 12 days, while other units and ships left truly bound for India. Those 12 days were spent getting the two brigades of the 5th Division ready for an amphibious landing, as in their vehicles had to be made waterproof, and all their supplies taken out and put back in, but in the order they would be needed. While this was being done, wireless sets were tested, maps were handed out, and of course, all the vehicles had to be topped off, tested one last time. And impressively enough, in 60 hours, 190 vehicles, all kinds, were unloaded, tested, refueled, modified, and reloaded. The same went for the landing craft, tested, refueled, and then placed on the respective ships they were to depart from to head for shore. This also included the motor landing craft, Derwentdale, 
which had 14 landing craft in her. She had been a fleet tanker. Now she was that and a landing ship. And many more like her would be needed before this war was over. But again, the million-dollar question was, how would the Vichy troops on the island respond? Intel was needed. Thus, the South African Air Force was ordered to take reconnaissance flights on February 21st. This was called Operation Lunatic, and it turned out to be a waste of time, as heavy clouds hung over the target area. The flights went up again on April 12th, and would approach the island from two different directions. The two long-range Maryland bombers approached the northern part of Madagascar. The first flew over Courier Bay, that is the body of water to the immediate left or west of Diego Suarez Bay. The second bomber took photos of the road from the coast to Diego Suarez. This was risky, but the force commanders needed updated information. Either way, both planes had been spotted by the Vichy officials, who just assumed it was the British and they were up to no good. As there were clouds on both flights, the brass eventually had to take the best photos from each attempt and recreate the island, and this would lead to some defensive units being missed by Sturgis and company. As for the other large cities, Mahunga and Tamatavi, to the south of Diego Suarez Bay, the plans for their capture were finalized and called Operation Ad Hoc. As London and Washington really wanted this to end peacefully, some 200,000 leaflets were printed up asking the French soldiers, airmen, and sailors to not resist. And as at one point the Americans were to be involved, some of these leaflets had the stars and stripes alongside the Union Jack and the Tricolor. Then it was determined the Americans would not be participating, so those leaflets, the ones with the American flag on them, they were burned in the boilers of the illustrious. Nothing could be allowed to leak out. But then Vichy threw a massive monkey wrench into the works without even realizing what they had done. Pierre Laval, one of the many former prime ministers of France during its turbulent post-World War I years, was now back in power as Minister of Foreign Affairs. This became official on April 14th, and he had openly stated that he wanted a closer working relationship with Nazi Germany. So the British suddenly had to worry about a potential massive downside to their attack. If and when they came at Madagascar, Vichy, under Laval, might decide to strike back hard. They could, if they wanted to, launch airstrikes at Bathurst, modern Gambia. It's on the African west coast, surrounded by Senegal. They could also hit Freetown, Sierra Leone, as it was within range. And it was also located on Africa's west coast, but a bit south of Gambia. And, of course, they could hit the doorway to the Mediterranean, Gibraltar. Beyond that, Vichy, with Laval arguing for it, may decide to declare war against Britain, but not the U.S. This complicated situation was getting that much more complicated. It took the Chiefs of Staff a whole 10 days to conclude that, at the very least, Laval would allow the Germans more access to their territory if Madagascar was attacked. Hence, the attack should be put off, say, until June, to get a better feel for how popular Laval was. 
But then Foreign Minister Anthony Eden came to the rescue by saying, you know, Laval, who is pro-German, will probably want to work closely with the Germans no matter what we do. So that should not be a deterrent. Eden's undersecretary, Alexander Kodigan, added his might by saying, let's risk something. As in, there is a war on, and we are not going to begin to turn the tide until we engage with the enemy. Still, Laval was a problem, so now 2.5 million leaflets would be printed up and they were to be dropped in unoccupied France to explain that what was happening was a good thing and it was good for France. The political warfare executive in London, or the PWE, wanted these dropped during the night of May 5th, but only after it was determined the operation had started. And then another roadblock. Chief of the Imperial General Staff, Field Marshal Alan Brooke, presented his argument to Churchill and Eden why this should not go forward. As he was a facts-driven man, his main argument was that if we attack the island, Laval may give over what is left of the French fleet to the Germans and what they could do with that. To Brooke, it was the equivalent of tying one's hand to one's foot before starting a fight. Brooke was by no means the only one who wanted this cancelled, but they all ran smack dab into a brick wall, and that brick wall was made of Churchill. Madagascar had loomed large in the Prime Minister's mind. What the Japanese could do with controlling the island gave him cold sweats and nightmares. The British were holding on to North Africa barely, so the last thing they needed was another threat in the region coming from another direction. And if the Japanese came, they would certainly stop all Allied reinforcements heading for Egypt or India. But leave it to Churchill to spell it out. It was, of course, much easier to do nothing. If the enterprise were abandoned, we should not have to take any risks of retaliation by Vichy. But having informed the President and General Smuts that we intended to carry out the operation at an early date, if we now reversed the decision and the Japanese walked into the island, our inaction would take a great deal of explaining away. He ended his message to FDR by saying, Nothing must interfere with Operation Ironclad. And in the American president, Churchill believed he had his ace. It was discussed of having FDR record a message for the French people, saying that Vichy was on the wrong side of history and they should not support it. So Hitler had Laval working for him, but Churchill had on his side the ultimate charmer, Franklin Delano Roosevelt.